we continue with the opinion of the court in Dubin v. United States. This suggests that Congress had in mind a particularly serious form of identity theft, yet the government's reading would apply an aggravated label to all manner of everyday overbilling offenses. Of course, Congress, like Humpty Dumpty, has the power to give words unorthodox meanings. Yet where the government argues for a result that the English language tells us not to expect, we must be very wary of the government's position. The title suggests identity theft is at the core of Section 1028-AA1. On the government's reading, however, everyday overbilling would become the most common trigger for Section 1028-AA1's severe penalty. This would turn the core of worse or more serious identity theft into something the ordinary user of the English language would not consider identity theft at all. 2. The title is, by definition, just the beginning. A title does not supplant the actual text of the provision, as the government observes. The problem for the government is that Section 1028AA1's language points in the same direction as its title. In particular, Congress used a trio of verbs that reflect an ordinary understanding of identity theft. While uses is indeterminate in isolation, here it has company. Section 1028AA1 applies when a defendant knowingly transfers, possesses, or uses, without lawful authority, a means of identification of another person, during and in relation to any predicate offense. Under the familiar interpretive canon Nociter Associus, a word is known by the company it keeps. This canon is often wisely applied where a word is capable of many meanings in order to avoid the giving of unintended breadth to the acts of Congress. The two neighboring verbs here, transfers and possesses, are most naturally read in the context of section 1028AA1 to connote theft. While it is not necessary to determine the precise meets and bounds of these two verbs, their role in the provision points to this targeted reading. Section 1028AA1 covers unlawful possession or transfer of a means of identification belonging to another person. Generally, to unlawfully possess something belonging to another person suggests it has been stolen. And to unlawfully transfer something belonging to another person similarly connotes misappropriating it and passing it along. In Flores Figueroa, this court drew a similarly intuitive link between a defendant taking a means of identification he knows belongs to another person, and theft. The government, at argument, agreed. These two verbs refer to circumstances in which the information is stolen. Transfer and possess not only connote theft, 
but identity theft in particular. The verbs point to one, theft of a two means of identification belonging to three, another person. That tracks ordinary understandings of identity theft, a crime in which someone, one, steals, two, personal information about, and three, belonging to another. Similarly, the one, fraudulent appropriation and use of, three, another person's, two, identifying data or documents. If this parallel were not enough, Section 1028AA1's title indicates that the type of theft its verbs connote is identity theft specifically. Because transfer and possess channel ordinary identity theft, Nositer Associus indicates that uses should be read in a similar manner to its companions. Uses is quite amenable to such a reading, and not just because of its indeterminacy. As explained above, using another person's means of identification to deceive or defraud is a common feature of identity theft. Congress thus employed a trio of verbs that capture various aspects of classic identity theft. There is the defendant who has gone through someone else's trash to find discarded credit card and bank statements, and thus has taken possession unlawfully. There is the bank employee who passes along customer information to an accomplice and thus transfers it unlawfully. And there is use involving fraud or deceit about identity. A defendant who has used another person's identification information to get access to that person's bank account. Another canon of construction offers a further point in favor of this narrow interpretation. The court assumes that Congress used three terms because it intended each term to have a particular non-superfluous meaning. Reading section 1028AA1's operative verbs as tracking aspects of classic identity theft, each verb has an independent role to play. As the definitions reveal, identity theft covers both when someone steals personal information about and belonging to another and uses the information to deceive others and fraudulent appropriation and use. Identity theft thus intermingles aspects of theft and fraud, misappropriation, and deceitful use. Section 1028AA1's three verbs capture this complexity, while transfer and possess conjure up two steps of theft. Uses supplies the deceitful use aspect. In contrast, if section 1028AA1's verbs do not track identity theft, and if the means of identification need only facilitate the predicate offense, the other two verbs threaten to leave uses without virtually any function. Return to a definition of in relation to that just means facilitates or furthers the predicate offense in some way. 
In virtually all cases where a defendant employs a means of identification to facilitate a crime, the defendant will also possess or transfer the means of identification in a way that facilitates the crime. For example, petitioner's possession of the patient's means of identification facilitated the fraud, as did petitioner's transfer of the patient's means of identification to Medicaid. It is hard to imagine when uses would not similarly be covered by, at least, one of the two other verbs. This risk of superfluity suggests giving section 1028AA1 a more precise reading. In sum, section 1028AA1's title and text are mutually reinforcing. Both point toward requiring the means of identification to be at the crux of the criminality. Section D. Section 1028A's list of predicate offenses points to yet another stumbling block for the government's broad reading. Section 1028AA1 is an enhancement, and a severe one at that. It adds a two-year mandatory prison sentence onto underlying offenses that do not impose a mandatory prison sentence of any kind. This prevents sentencing judges from considering the severity of the offense, even if the amount of money involved was quite small or there are other mitigating factors. Interpretation of Section 1028AA1 should thus reflect the distinction between the aggravated identity theft crimes that Congress sought to distinguish for heightened punishment and other crimes. Far from distinguishing, the government's reading collapses the enhancement into the enhanced. Here, the government claims that because petitioner's overbilling was facilitated by the patient's Medicaid reimbursement number, Section 1028A1 automatically applies. Patient names or other identifiers will, of course, be involved in the great majority of healthcare billing, whether Medicare for massages or for ambulance stretcher services. Patient names will be on prescriptions and patients committing fraud on their own behalf will often have to include the names of others on their forms, such as doctors or employers. Under the government's own reading, such cases are automatically identity theft, independent of whether the name itself had anything to do with the fraudulent aspect of the offense. Nor are these implications confined to healthcare. Section 1028AA1's predicates include a vast array of offenses, including wire fraud and mail fraud. The government's boundless reading of uses and in relation to would cover facilitating mail fraud by using another person's name to address a letter to them. Even beyond that, names or other means of identification are used routinely for billing and payment, whether payment apps, credit and debit cards, a bill sent by mail, or an invoice sent electronically. So long as the criteria for the broad predicate offenses are met, the government's reading creates an automatic two-year sentence for generic overbilling that happens to use ubiquitous payment methods. A far more sensible conclusion from the statutory structure is that Section 1028AA1's enhancement is not indiscriminate, but targets situations where the means of identification itself plays a key role. 
one that warrants a two-year mandatory minimum. This points once more to a targeted reading, where the means of identification is at the crux of the underlying criminality, not an ancillary feature of billing. Section E. If more were needed, a final clue comes from the staggering breadth of the government's reading. This court has traditionally exercised restraint in assessing the reach of a federal criminal statute. This restraint arises both out of deference to the prerogatives of Congress and out of concern that a fair warning should be given to the world in language that the common world will understand of what the law intends to do if a certain line is passed. After all, crimes are supposed to be defined by the legislature, not by clever prosecutors riffing on equivocal language. Time and again, this court has prudently avoided reading incongruous breadth into opaque language in criminal statutes. In Van Buren v. United States, the far-reaching consequences of the government's reading underscored the implausibility of the government's interpretation. In Marinello, the court rejected the government's reading of a statute about obstructing administration of the tax code that would have swept in the person who pays a babysitter $41 per week in cash without withholding taxes, as well as someone who leaves a large cash tip in a restaurant, fails to keep donation receipts from every charity to which he or she contributes, or fails to provide every record to an accountant. Nor was all such conduct innocent, as the statute required an individual to act corruptly. Even still, had Congress intended to sweep so far, it would have spoken with more clarity than it did. In Yates, the court held that the government's unrestrained reading would have turned a provision focused on records and documents into an all-encompassing ban on the spoliation of evidence that would sweep within its reach physical objects of every kind, including a fish. Had Congress set out to do so, one would have expected a clearer indication of that intent. So too here. The government's reading would sweep in the hour-inflating lawyer, the stake-switching waiter, the building contractor who tacks an extra $10 onto the price of the paint he purchased. So long as they used various common billing methods, they would all be subject to a mandatory two years in federal prison. To say that such a result is implausible would be an understatement. Because everyday overbilling cases would account for the majority of violations in practice, the government's reading places at the core of the statute its most improbable applications. Finally, the government makes a familiar plea. There is no reason to mistrust its sweeping reading because prosecutors will act responsibly. To this, the court gives a just-as-familiar response. We cannot construe a criminal statute on the assumption that the government will use it responsibly. To rely upon prosecutorial discretion to narrow the otherwise wide-ranging scope of a criminal statute's highly abstract general statutory language places greater power in the hands of the prosecutor. This concern is particularly salient here. 
if Section 1028AA1 applies virtually automatically to a swath of predicate offenses, the prosecutor can hold the threat of charging an additional two-year mandatory prison sentence over the head of any defendant who is considering going to trial. Part 3 All the points above are different wells drawing from the same source. The court need not decide whether any of these points standing alone would be dispositive. Taken together, from text to context, from content to common sense, Section 1028AA1 is not amenable to the government's attempt to push the statutory envelope. A defendant uses another person's means of identification in relation to a predicate offense when this use is at the crux of what makes the conduct criminal. To be clear, being at the crux of the criminality requires more than a causal relationship, such as facilitation of the offense or being a but-for cause of its success. Instead, with fraud or deceit crimes, like the one in this case, the means of identification specifically must be used in a manner that is fraudulent or deceptive. Such fraud or deceit going to identity can often be succinctly summarized as going to who is involved. Here, petitioner's use of the patient's name was not at the crux of what made the underlying overbilling fraudulent. The crux of the healthcare fraud was a misrepresentation about the qualifications of petitioner's employee. The patient's name was an ancillary feature of the billing method employed. The Sixth Circuit's more colloquial formulation is a helpful guide, though like any rule of thumb, it will have its limits. Here, however, it neatly captures the thrust of the analysis, as petitioner's fraud was in misrepresenting how and when services were provided to a patient, not who received the services. Because petitioner did not use the patient's means of identification in relation to a predicate offense within the meaning of Section 1028A-A1, the judgment of the Court of Appeals is vacated, and the case is remanded for further proceedings consistent with this opinion. It is so ordered. We've come to the end of the opinion. Until next episode, thanks for listening to What SCOTUS Wrote Us.